We're continuing our study of Into the World. Last weekend, we talked about John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Today, we're going to do the sequel, John 3.17, for God so saved the world. Let's look at the scripture today and read it together from God's Word, John 3.17. Would you join me? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending Your Son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. And I want to pray today, I want to request that everyone sitting here this morning in the auditorium, everyone listening online, will receive a divine sense that they are valued, that they are important to you, God, that they are loved by you and not condemned. Awaken us with this God idea from your word today. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen. Do you know, when we look at God's mission, that he so loved the world, sent his only begotten son, that he's not here to condemn us, we realize that he is continuing that mission around the world, that God is saving the world. Think about it. There are 7.4 billion people on this planet, a little more than that. There are 2 billion people who identify with Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. Kimberly, would you stand? Grace, Spencer. So, out of every three people on this planet, one person identifies with Christ. That's a fact. We also know that missional organizations tell us that there are 700 million Pentecostals or Charismatics. And you may say, well, what is a Pentecostal? A Pentecostal or a Charismatic is someone who simply believes that Jesus... No, son, stay stay standing. (laughs) That believes that Jesus is still doing the same things today that he did 2,000 years ago. He's still saving, he's still healing, he's still delivering, he's still performing miracles. That the very same things that Jesus did while he walked on the earth, are happening today. So if we add to it, Austin, would you stand? Four, five, Brianna, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Would you stand? Which means out of the more than 7.4 billion people, one out of ten on this planet identify themselves as Pentecostal or charismatic, believing Jesus is still doing the same things today as he did when he walked the earth. Now, I want to give you one more example. We know on the day of Pentecost, we saw the launch of the church. Peter stood up and he preached to a multitude of people and 3,000 people came to know Christ on that particular day, the day of Pentecost. Did you know missional organizations tell us that in 2015, last year, 100 million people came to Christ all over the globe. A hundred million people. You know how many people that is every single day? That's 273,000 people 
every single day. That's right. One missional organization says it wasn't 100 million, it was 63 million. Well, let's lower it. Let's take the lower number then. Well, that means 273,000 didn't come to Christ every day, but 173,000 came to Christ every day. Let me help you to understand what I'm talking about. Would you stand, Peter? So we have 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Go ahead and stand. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Right back there. Let's go over here. 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57. I don't know how many are standing. But what I'm showing you is this. Every day in 2015, the day of Pentecost happened 57 times. I want, I want you to, to grasp the gravity of what I'm saying. If 3,000 people came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost, and there was 173,000 who came to the Lord every day of last year, that means every day of last year we experienced 57 days of Pentecost. Now I think God deserves praise and glory for that this morning. Thank you so much for standing. So what I'm sharing with you today is God is saving the world. God is transforming people's lives all over the globe. Many of you know that I like to take scripture and just chew on different pieces of it. And when we look at John chapter 3 verse 17, we read, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So if you're taking notes from your program, the first idea there it's talking about God did not condemn the world. The first two words, for God, as I shared last weekend, involves the notion that the beginning point is God. The psalmist says in Psalm 24 that in Him is the fullness of life. The earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof and everyone who is in it. That, that's striking to me that the world belongs to the Lord. Mother Earth belongs to God, which is interesting for those people who are worshiping Mother Earth, don't you think? Why would you want to worship something that is falling apart? Think about it. The Earth is falling apart, degenerating at whatever uh, proportion, but it's falling apart. And the earth is not personal. You don't turn on the water spout and hear the water say, I love you. You don't walk down the pavement and hear the pavement say, I feel your pain. But when you are following God, you are following someone who is personal, who is moved by your infirmities and your weaknesses, moved by what you're feeling, Willing to walk alongside of every situation that you face. He is not only God most high, but God most nigh. He is a 
personal God involved in your life. He is the beginning point for God. And he sent his son into the world. That's, that's the theme, into the world. And I love the fact that God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. He's the model example of going into the world. I know if you look at dramas on television or at the movie theater, oftentimes you'll see a tragedy that's followed by a triumph. My family likes to watch the, the series Madam Secretary. It's a, it's a fairly clean series on Sunday nights. And a couple of Sunday nights ago, uh, this woman straps a bomb to her, to her back and the bomb explodes. Madam Secretary's husband, Henry, played by Tim Daly, rushes in to try to save those people who were exposed to radiation. He himself is exposed to radiation. And the rest of the program is really about whether or not he will die because of the exposure to the radiation, the radi radioactivity that was in the room. Of course, through vaccines and his exposure was minimal, he triumphs. He doesn't die at the end of the show. But I was thinking about that and I, I thought, isn't that what happened when God sent his son into the world? Satan strapped a dirty bomb to his chest. It exploded. We experienced the radioactivity of sin polluting our world. And there needed to be a vaccine. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus needed to enter the human family and change the narrative, the script of the story. What was a tragedy where sin polluted the world now became a triumph ah, because Jesus changed the story by coming into the world. I want you to know today that, that God was so interested in humanity that he did not allow the tragedy to prevail, but he sent his son into the world not to condemn it. I don't know about you, but I have at times struggled with the difference between conviction and condemnation. Anybody struggled with that? What, what's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Well, we read in the Greek that the word convict is, is the word elenko, which talks about to convince of guilt, whereas the word condemn is the word krino, which is not talking about convincing of guilt. It's talking about punishment for guilt or punishment as guilty. When you have someone who is involved in the criminal system or goes to trial, there's a proving system in place where the person, the judge, the jury, there's a convincing process where there's a conviction, convincing of guilt. But then there's also another part, which is the sentencing part, the punishment for that guilt, which is the idea of condemnation. Are you seeing the difference? God did not send his son into the world to punish us of our guilt. He sent his son to convince us 
that we're guilty. To help us to understand our need of God. We needed convincing of our sin. He he didn't come to punish us. Condemnation is not from God. Conviction is from God. Notice in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 8. And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will condemn the world. It's not what it says. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Conviction is what causes us to run to Christ. We recognize our need of Christ. Conviction produces godly sorrow. Condemnation produces personal shame. Let me say it again. Conviction produces godly sorrow. We run to God. We we know how, how much we need Him. Conviction causes us to love God more and to love ourselves more. Condemnation produces personal shame. It causes us to hold God at length because we don't feel worthy to approach Him. We're guilty. We feel ashamed of our sin. So we end up residing in a in a cage of guilt and shame, trying to hide from him like Adam and Eve in the garden because we're feeling condemned. That's not why God sent his son into the world. And may I say that to you right now within the sound of my voice in this auditorium and online. God did not send his son to condemn you. He sent his son to convince you of your need of the Lord. One of the most incredible stories in the New Testament that speaks to this idea of condemnation is the story when the Pharisees and the Sadducees threw the woman who had committed adultery at Jesus' feet. They're standing around with stones, John chapter 8, flexing their muscle and declaring, the law says this woman is to be condemned, is to be stoned. Here was Jesus' response. The whole time, they're spewing their accusations and condemnation. He's ignoring them and he's drawing in the dirt. In fact, I think really what was happening here was Jesus decided to get down on the level, the same level of the woman. She was right there. And now he was on her level saying, I, I know you're struggling, but I'm right here. I'm right with you. Finally, the religious leaders finish. Jesus stands back up on their level and he issues this incredible statement Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Knelt back down, still continued to draw on the dirt one by one, everyone holding stones left. And then Jesus begins to talk to the woman. Jesus doesn't deal with the woman's sin 
until he has dealt with the accuser's condemnation. <laughs> he doesn't try to embrace her with love until he shows her that he is not ashamed of her. That she no longer has to live through the shame of condemnation. And you say, oh yeah, but, but Jesus said, go and sin no more. Yes, he, he said, go and sin no more, but he said that after he declared, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I, I wonder, in the confines of, of the church, how we really expect to reach people with a gospel message of love when all we can do is stand above them and point our fingers down at them, pointing at the, the frailties and the failures and the, the weaknesses and the problems and the shame. Do you really think people will open up their lives to us and allow us to embrace them with Christ's love if all they can see from us is a finger of accusation and condemnation? I don't think so. I think the people who really get it, who understand what it means to go into the world, are the people who understand what it means to get down on the level where people are, find out their story, understand their circumstances and their situations, and help them change the script and the narrative of their lives. That's, that's what I think. I call it the gospel track syndrome. Nothing wrong with gospel tracks. People have come to the Lord. But it's how you hand out gospel tracks. I've been around people who come running in with gospel tracks in their hands and they're stuffing them in people's hands. I'll sit in a Starbucks or a coffee shop. Somebody will come running in and they're, they're stuffing tracks in people's hands and out the door they go. I say it this way, you know, they give people a little bit of heaven and then run like hell. <laughs> really, are they getting down on the level of the people? If you're going to hand out a gospel track and, and share some spiritual law, shouldn't you want to know what the woman is going through? Shouldn't you want to experience what the narrative is? what the script is in that, that man's life. Shouldn't you want to kneel down like Jesus and just get down on that level and say, you know, what you don't understand is that I know the frailty of, her, of dirt, that you, dirt to dirt and ashes to ashes. I was the one who spoke you into existence. I understand you better than you understand yourself. That's what Christianity is. If you came this morning expecting some kind of message about condemnation or accusation, that's, that's not who Higher Vision Church is. It's not what our Savior's about. In fact, it's, Christianity is not about a, a system of beliefs, although you will live out those beliefs in God's Word when you come to Christ. But it's a personal relationship with Christ. For God did not send His Son into the world on our level to connect with our lives 
so he could condemn us. Some people think that, that Christianity is about wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is simply having this hopeful attitude that somehow, some way, something will work out. That's not what Christianity is about. Wishful thinking is blowing out candles on a birthday cake and hoping that you'll have another year of health so you can blow out some more candles. Wishful thinking is training season, baseball season, and hoping that the Dodgers don't disappoint you again this year. That's wishful thinking. That's not, that's not Christianity. It's not even blind optimism. Blind optimism is when people completely ignore and gloss over the problems and situations that they're facing in life. I like to use the example of the guy that jumps off a 10-story building. Blind optimism is on the way down, halfway down. He says, so far, so good. <laughs> Have you ever been around people like that? It's like they want to gloss over the problem as if nothing's going on and they're falling. Their lives are falling apart. So far, so good. No, Jesus wants to come along and embrace you and help you to know that he is with you every step of the way. In fact, I want to take a moment right now. Would you just bow your heads with me right here? Those of you who are watching online from across the country and around the world, I want to ask you today, I want to, I want to give you an opportunity today to experience the love of Jesus, not the condemnation of Jesus. I call it the great exchange. It's God saying, just give me all your sin, and I'll give you all my salvation, and we'll just call it even. That's what salvation is. This morning, if you're here and you know this is, this is your opportunity to say yes to the Lord, maybe for the first time, you're here in church, but you know that you need to move past wishful thinking and blind optimism to a, to a knowledge in your heart that Jesus is living on the inside, that he's your Savior, he's your Lord. Or maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ today. It's time to overcome the sin. Sin is distance. Not really a matter of goodness and badness, but distance from God. It distances you from God. It separates you from God. And this is your moment to take your sin and give it to God and exchange it for salvation. That's you. I'm going to count to three right now. I don't want you to hesitate. I just want you to respond in faith and say, that's me, by lifting up your hand. One, two. This is your moment to, to experience the great exchange. Three. Let me see your hands right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. Amazing. Yes, all over here in this section over here. I see your hands. Right through here in this section, right back there in the back, right here in the middle, I see your hands. Over here, keep your hands up if you will. And in this section, I see you right back there in the back and over here. Also in the section back there, I see you. And over here on this side, thank you so much. You can put your hands down. Would you join me in prayer right now across this auditorium? Would you pray this after me? Everyone here this morning, Lord Jesus, thank you for not condemning me. Thank you for loving me. Forgive me of my sin. I come close to you this morning. I invite you into my life. I will follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we give the Lord praise this morning? How amazing! 
How exciting. Let's move to the second part of the message. For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's the interesting idea. The word saved in the Greek is the word sozo, which means to rescue. That's what just happened right now. God reached down and he rescued us. I was reading about a plane crash back in the 1980s, 1987. There was a plane, a Northwest Airline flight that crashed just after takeoff from Detroit's airport. 155 people were killed. There was one survivor. A four-year-old little girl named Cecilia. Four years old, from Tempe, Arizona. When the first responders arrived on the scene, they thought she had just run away from one of the vehicles out on the highway and showed up at the site. They, they didn't realize that she was on the manifesto. Her name was on the manifesto. And when they began to put the pieces together, they found that when the plane was going down, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her seatbelt, knelt on her hands and knees, and covered her daughter and just hugged her daughter and the seat to protect her. Now, I, I'm not advocating if your plane's going down, you unbuckle your seatbelt. Probably is not a good idea. But I was moved by the willingness of this mother to put her life on the line for her daughter. And somehow, by getting down on her knees and hugging her daughter and protecting her daughter, little Cecilia survived. And I thought that's exactly what Jesus did when he rescued us. He unbuckled his seatbelt from heaven, and from the cross, he reached down and he hugged us, and he embraced us, and he rescued us from going down. He rescued us from our sin. Amen. And I, I think when it comes to the idea of into the world, there, there needs to be some kind of urgency that exists within all of us concerning just sharing the love of Christ. That just as Jesus rescued us, that we have an opportunity to help rescue others. There's a responsibility that we carry, an urgency. I, I can't speak for you, but I know in my own life that that's something I have to continuously ramp up and stir myself up with, the importance of sharing my faith, sharing the love of Christ. I will tell on myself a little bit. When I was serving as a lead pastor in the Midwest, on one particular event, I walked up to the, the podium. It was a service and I basically started by saying, folks, right now we're just going to dismiss our service. And we're going to start our service in, in two hours. And I want to ask you if you would go out and just follow what the Scripture talks about, going into the highways and byways and compelling people to come in. And in two, two hours, we'll start our service back up. I didn't know what was going to happen. 
I didn't know if people were going to go home and not come back. I, I didn't know if, if we were going to have more people show up in two hours. I had, I had no clue, no idea what was going to happen at that particular moment. So I grabbed Kimberly. We jumped in the car. We headed out because, you know, I, I'm not going to ask people to do what I'm not doing myself. That's hypocrisy, expecting others to do what you're not willing to do yourself. So I jump in the car. I head out. We go to the main uh, area of our city, the, the city where... There's, there's a lot of struggle, the cardboard community, homeless people living there. The first person that I see walking down the street is this guy who is not all there, if you know what I mean. He's a little bit drunk, and he's stammering down the street. He's wandering down the street. I, I see him. I look at my wife. She's wondering what's going through your head. I pull up to the side of the street. I jump out of my car and run down the street. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Come see Jesus. Come see Jesus. And I usher him over and I open the back seat of the car and I throw him in, close the back door, and I head on down the road. That's not getting down on somebody's level. So we're sitting in the car, right? He's sitting in the back seat. Now what? I look at Kimberly out of the corner of my eye. She looks at me out of the corner of her eye. And we're both wondering what in the world are we doing? Kimberly was wondering, what are you doing? And about three minutes away from the church, he's sitting back there a little bit discombobulated, kind of looking around and looking at the car, looking at Kimberly, looking at me. I can just see him kind of. About three minutes from the church, he leans forward. He looks at me and he looks at her. And he says, you're going to kill me, aren't you? <laughs> I said, you know, we're not going to kill you. We're taking you to church. We're going to introduce you to Jesus. I'm not advocating that you do that today. It's probably not the best way to get people to come to church. But I'll tell you this, for the next couple of years, we had an incredible opportunity to see Tennessee and Lucille, the bag lady, and Charlie, and a whole host of people experience the love of Jesus like they've never experienced before. Tennessee, that guy in the back seat, started coming every weekend. Come up and sit on the front row, smelling to high heaven. <laughs> but God began to do some amazing, incredible things in his life. Lucille, the bag lady, she would come and sit next to him. And about 15 minutes before service was over, before I would give the altar call, she would head back to the kitchen because she knew some food was back there. And she was hungry. 
I think for me, ever so often, I, I just have to ramp up the urgency. And I'll tell you, I don't have all the answers because there have been times that I've struggled with what, what does it mean for me to go into the world and at times I would feel extremely guilty if I didn't pray with someone to accept Christ until I realized that, that that's not what Jesus was asking. Whether I sealed the deal or not in praying with someone was not what he was asking me to do. I finally learned basically one principle and one scripture that turned it all around for me. The one principle was this, that God is the one who is doing the saving and not me. I can't rescue anyone. I can lead them to Christ and he can rescue them. I can keep planting seed and watering the seed. It's what John chapter 4 talks about, the scripture I was telling you about. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. That my role was to plant and to water, that sometimes I would plant, other times I would water, other times I would have the privilege of leading somebody to that point of decision-making. But my role was just to keep planting and seeding. Took the pressure off when I realized that I just needed to continue to help people to move one step further in their spiritual journey. I, in closing, I love the angle scale. James Engel created a, a scale to help us to understand what happens with someone who absolutely has no awareness of God. Very practical idea. No awareness of God to someone who surrenders his or her life to Christ. No awareness. Point number one, moving people to some awareness of God then moving them to some contact with Christians, moving them to some interest in Jesus Christ, eventually investigating Jesus Christ. You know, this is where I find myself most often when I'm talking to people in the community about who they believe or what they believe, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Most of the time, I'm moving them from some interest in Christ to investigating who Christ is in his or her life. Sometimes it's in steps 6 through 10, grasping the truth about Christ, accepting the truth about Christ, grasping the implications of that truth, accepting the implications. Because when we raise our hands, we're not just saying, Lord, come in and save me, but we're saying, Lord, come in and save me, and I will follow you. The implications are, I will follow your word, and I will live as you want me to live. And then ever so often, I get to experience helping someone move from step number nine to an absolute surrender to Christ. Pastor Jared and I experience that every weekend here at Higher Vision. That opportunity to help people move from number nine to number 10. But here's the thing. You're the ones who have already been seeding and watering. 
You're the ones who have helped people move to that very important point of 9 to 10. I wouldn't be able to stand up and give an altar call, call or an opportunity for people to accept Christ if you hadn't already been inviting and planting and watering. Some of us are here today because of a Susie Ingold or a Todd Bernard or a Byron Davis. Some of us are here today because someone decided to get down on his or her level and just find out the narrative and say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but to save you. Can I express gratitude to you today for going into the world, for continually sharing Christ? I'm hopeful I don't hear of any incidents where you throw people in your car, bring them to church. But I will say, those of you who raised your hand today, you're now part of the approximately two billion You're now part of the 70 million. You're now part of those 57 days of Pentecost that happen every day of the year.